0: the Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirod. Today we bring you part one of a two-part interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow about The Welltall File the latest installment in their Gordian Division series. The series started with The Gordian Protocol, a time travel novel, but has segued into a hard science fiction mystery series. Griffin Barber interviews David Weber and Jacob Hollow in just a moment. But first, the news. Well, here we are in June, and the hardcovers and trade paperbacks will soon hit bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up, The Welltall File by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. The Welltall Tournament's professional VR games were supposed to be a symbol of cooperation between CISGOV and its militaristic neighbor, the admin. But that was before star admin player Ellie Sacco received a death threat written in blood next to a copy of her own severed head the admin's Department of Temporal Investigation swiftly seizes control of the crime scene, and the tournament transforms into a flashpoint of charged politics and conflicting jurisdictions. CisPAL Detective Isaac Cho and DTI Special Agent Susan Cantrell, partners in the officer exchange program, are sent in to take charge of the investigation and bring the situation under control. But solving this mystery won't be easy, and the pair struggles to determine who is telling the truth. A jilted relationship between players soon explodes into signs of a far-reaching conspiracy, and the two detectives find themselves racing against time before the tournament ends. Because the killer will be the only one who wins, should they fail. Next we have Rhymer by Gregory Frost. Rhymer brings to life Thomas the Rhymer, legendary 12th century figure of traditional Scottish balladry. As a champion who must battle the diabolical Evag, an alien race thought to be elves and fairies, hell bent on conquering our world. This saga pits Thomas against the near immortal elves, first with only his wits, then with powers of his own that enable him to take on these evil creatures throughout the centuries. He's known by many names over time, Tamlin, Robin Hood, and numerous other incarnations reaching into the present. But at his heart, he is still true Thomas, one man doing all he can to save us from an all-powerful foe. When his brother is snatched right before his eyes, Thomas hunts for justice and discovers that not only do these elves steal people, but they are also skinwalkers who occupy humans in positions of power. Their goal, to obliterate humanity and take over our world. When Thomas is dragged into their alien realm, he's imprisoned and barely escapes alive. But in the process, he gains near immortality and the ability to transform himself. Will it be enough to protect his loved ones and defeat the enemies of humankind? That's The Well File and Rhymer available soon in hardcover. And that's it for the news.
2: Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bane Free Radio Hour. David Weber is a modern master of military science fiction. Most famous for his Honor Harrington series, David has frequently collaborated with other excellent authors of the genre to produce new and fascinating worlds for legions of fans. Jacob Hollow writes across the genre with novels in military SF, space opera, YA urban fantasy, and steampunk fantasy. His latest work is The Well Tall the fourth book in the Time Travel Space Opera series co-authored with David Weber that we're here to talk about today. Hello and welcome, David and Jacob.
3: Hi there. Great to be here.
2: So uh, as usual, uh, you might be experiencing this. uh, The hardest question comes first when I'm hosting this uh, Bane Free Radio Hour. What is the coolest aspect of the file for each of you?
4: Jacob, you want to go first? uh yeah i had a, I, I actually uh i had to think about
3: this one um when, when i got the uh, uh the interview questions and because the, there are a lot of uh very cool aspects that i I'm, I'm, was very excited about uh both in the the planning stages and writing stages of, of the book um now i am uh you know david you know this i'm i'm a bit of a gamer
2: um no really just
3: just a little bit um and you know slowly uh kind of a some some of my background as a gamer has um slid into the uh the the Gordian Division series and uh no one at any point told me to stop doing it um so uh the uh the Beltol file uh, features a uh trans-dimensional uh, high-profile gaming tournament <laughs> and um, that was that was really uh, a really fun part of, of the book to set up it's not like the the main plot is it's sort of like a, a, a background event that the main plot is kind of structured on top of but it was it was very cool to work on that aspect of the book
4: and for you i Dan? think well i think for me it falls into two categories okay one is the nature and the concept of the book and the entire gordian universe that jacob and i are working in here uh because it's it's time travel it's multidimensional uh there and there are some we we get to look at some really significant moral questions um in, in all the books, especially in the in the protocol books as opposed to the file books. And there's actually a division in the titles, which we're we're tracking with here. Uh, and so for me, that and watching these two totally disparate societies that grew up on the same planet but have been separated from one another for seven, eight hundred years, following different progression, watching them come together and try and overcome the inevitable differences. Uh, To me, that's the the, the coolest aspect of the entire book. The coolest scene in the entire book, though, is the uh, surfing on the moon. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. And and the reaction of our visitor from admin when she finds out that because the lunar day was an inconvenient length, the folks at Cisco slowed the moon uh, to give it the the proper day uh, kind of thing. And she's like, say what? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it took a while. Like, yeah, 150 years. But yeah, you know, And she's kind of like, say, say what? (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, kind of thing. So, and that's one of the, the, and that, by the way, that's all Jacob, uh, in there. He, he, he built that entire thing. Um, but I think that's, for me, probably the coolest
2: scene, uh, in the book. Me. So uh, I guess there's a combination then of those. for this next question. The answer would be a combination. Did you stumble on that aspect or did you uh, work your way toward it or did the characters dictate it? It sounds like a a, a melange of those things.
4: Well, it usually is. Um, okay. This whole literary universe grew out of a concept that I actually pitched to Jim Bain 30, 40 years ago. Uh, which eventually became the Gordian Protocol when when Jacob and I got together to write it. So I had this kind of overall conception of how these universes were supposed to be and how they were supposed to comport with one another and so forth. When I brought Jacob in, okay, virtually all of the tech base of these two competing uh, universes and now Sort of learning to cooperate universes uh, was structured by Jacob after he and I had discussed what the tech had to accomplish, if you follow what I'm saying. Right. So, for example the 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 ocean on the moon, okay, which has been terraformed, all right, um grows out of the tech tree that Jacob put together. And I deliberately. Did not have very much at all to do with building out that tech because I've done enough novels that I have a tendency to fall into uh, not necessarily the same pattern, but the same conceptual building blocks blocks for my technology in it. Right, and I wanted it to go somewhere totally differently. And Jacob definitely went somewhere. <laughs> Totally differently. (laughs) Mission accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I killed the goldfish, but go ahead.
3: (laughs) Well, the, um, you know, getting back to, you know, that aspect of of the development, um, I kind of view it as, you know, um, David gave me sort of uh, picture frames, you know, boundaries that the um, the world building that I was going to do uh, needed to fulfill, um, but in terms of the actual portrait that goes into the frame, he left that up to me. And when I was originally working on it, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm this is too crazy, but we're just going to see what David says. <laughs> And I sent it over and yeah, there was, you know, some massaging, you know, around the the edges, but but overall kept pretty much everything I put in there.
4: I I think, I think really all of what I would consider massaging that we did uh, was where we needed to be thinking about the nuts and bolts that our time travelers are going to be working with to accomplish the plot elements that we needed to accomplish. Uh, I was just really, really pleased with with how well Jacob had had done on it. Um, In some respects, I think that Jacob is probably the best of the uh, world builders that I have collaborated with in what you might call a mentoring relationship. Okay, very few loose ends. Okay. And he looks very hard at the logical consequences of what he wants to include. Um, And he goes for a well thought out uh, infrastructure based on the technological assumptions that he's baked in uh, to the to the background uh i think i still have the edge where it comes to historical overarching uh plot lines and and basically strategically plotting where we want to go with the series but jacob is fantastic uh at 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 building universes and tony weisskopf introduced him to police procedural novels (laughs) which is a huge part of what's going on in this book and the Janus yeah. file, um, and uh, and I, I, it's been it's been great. I, from the very beginning, I intended for there to be both like a police enforcement arm and what you might call a military arm to my administration policing time travel and whatnot. Um, I think that Jacob Tony the police procedurals, have made that a much more fertile division than anything that I had in mind. I was thinking in terms of Keith Laumer's Paratime Police in a lot of ways. Um, And this is a much better, more fully realized and very different concept from that. Um, And I always intended it to be different from from the paracops but the paracops were kind of the kind of mix that I was thinking about for the duties right. of my my law enforcement people. Uh, this is a a much better, much more satisfying mix, and that's what collaborations are supposed to do right. is they're supposed to be a collaborative
2: effort. I've been very, right. very satisfied with the way this this one is going. Neat. So the the Veltal file is the sequel to the Janus file, the Gordian protocol, and the Valkyrie protocol. Uh, Yet it's clear you make a lot of effort to keep the book accessible to new readers. Uh, Was this concentrating on, a concentration on making uh, uh, this a discrete story, a conscious decision, or a natural outgrowth of where the series is left off after the Janus file?
3: I think it was, uh, I mean, it, it was... Basically from the start, David and I have approached the uh, Gordian Division series um, as um, accessible standalone stories that while they do fit into an overarching um, future history that that we're building, um, you've got plenty of, you know, as many entry points as we have books basically at this point. Yeah. Um, and so yes, having that accessibility um, was was very much uh, intentional.
4: And I think also, okay, if this series prosper, if if these books prosper the way that we we hope that they will, eventually reach a point, we will reach a point where you, you they can't be complete entry level books because there's going to have to be a certain amount of assumed background on the part of our readers to pursue the the storyline. Okay these books by their nature limit the damage in that respect because each time traveling thing is going to be different and unique unto itself etc so in that respect they will always be standalone stories Okay, but they will also be part of this gradually growing series. And however standalone they may be, they will be much richer for you if you've read the books that come before and you can see all the connections. Now, the other thing is there are actually two series here. Uh, One is the Gordian Protocol series, and the other is the Janus File series. There's overlap of characters uh there's there's uh there's interconnectivity they're taking place in the same society the same events are in the background okay but the file titles are going to be essentially the law enforcement police side of things right the protocol novels are going to be novels where something big enough goes wrong that they have to make a new rule That goes into their protocols of, no, you don't do this ever, ever again, kind of thing. Okay. And we have a protocol novel in the works. It's kind of like you have to put Jacob on a reducing diet where the destruction of universes is concerned. Okay, I mean, you know, he's just. This literally
3: happened. I I was placed (laughs) on a universe destroying diet by David (laughs) Weber and Tony Weisskopf.
4: Yes, we said, said, can't kill another universe in this book. Um, But the, um, so yeah, we're talking about in the next one probably just destroying a galaxy or two, (laughs) not an entire universe. We're cutting back, we're cutting back. Uh, but yeah it's so so one of them is going to be like kind of the grand scale of the of these two societies moving through their historical evolution with the time travel involved and and everything else okay and those stories are going to have more of a military uh, bent to them but then we're going to have the, the file stories, which are gonna be Isaac and Sefi and Susan and and that whole crew uh, moving forward. And they're going to be not just law enforcement, not just not just uh, 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 procedural novels. But there was a lot, if you read this book carefully, there's a lot a little more interweaving of these two societies, these two cultures, the contact points between them growing. That's going to be one of the other things that happens in the file books. So I don't think, I don't really don't think of the Janus file and the Veltal file as sequels to the Gordian Protocol and the Janus Protocol. I think of them as companion series, right, to those books. If you see the distinction I'm making. Oh
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. So like the uh the Per Harpers of Pern kind of thing, as as opposed to the Dragon Riders.
4: Yeah, or what I originally intended to do with uh, the Shadow of Saganami, in the right. Honor Harrington books. Right. Um, or like like what Tim and I are doing with Tom Pope. On the Manticore Ascendant novels and Jane and me on the okay, they're they're not really in the main series, the main story arc. That the the difference is your Harper's Hall is probably a better choice in the sense that these are contemporaneous rather than separated in time. That's probably a better. Might
2: think that I've read those a few times. Yeah, you might. You (laughs) might. I certainly did. You know. Yeah. Uh... Uh, So this book is full of big idea SF with consciousness transfer, post-physical sentience, time travel, aerostats, post-scarcity polities, and a lot more. Uh, We get more uh, of the games and artificial realities developed in the earlier works, uh, including a new one that lends its name to this book, the Veltel file. Uh, How much labor was involved in developing the game of Veltel as its own thing, or did it uh, develop naturally uh, as the story required it? Well, I can honestly say that it didn't require any work from me. Yeah, so I, was, I was looking at Jacob while I, was,
3: while I was asking that question. I was looking at Jacob. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, well, as as I mentioned before, I'm I'm a little bit of a gamer, um, and I I do I do enjoy watching the occasional esports. Um, so there's there's some some you know influence there. Um, uh, I, I'd say the, the sport that I, I enjoy watching most are uh, uh, StarCraft II uh, tournaments, um, and um, so you know, I I knew I wanted to create a sort of epic scale real-time strategy game, you know, for for the fiction for for the tournament, um, and it's a it, uh, it ended up being pr- pretty epic in in terms of its scale where you know you've got one player who decides to build a stellar engine and move his star closer to, <laughs> to another player's system <laughs> um and where you know the limitations of light speed actually essentially create the fog of war that you um you know you you experience in in real time strategy games a lot um and you know the the options for players you know wh- well okay uh, there there's in terms of designing it the I, I didn't create like a game
2: <laughs> right
3: you know i did i you know it's it's you know it's smoke and mirrors <laughs> essentially that's right. going on i mean on.
2: we we do get to witness players playing the game yes uh, and the the strategies that they're employing seem seemed legit to me so, well I think yeah, and, I think
4: Jacob give me okay I think Jacob created the systems of the game without creating the software of the game yes, so he yes, knew yes. what you could yes. do within yes. the the system yep. that
2: he had designed yeah, no. yeah.
3: And, no, and no crunch
2: time for Jacob
3: there's no. <laughs> there's enough of that <laughs> um but, uh, you know, having, um, you know, uh, game mechanics that, uh, uh, are flexible enough, you know, uh, for different strategies to, to, to work. And so you, you have, it, you know, one player who's essentially, you know, turtling up, you know, primarily taking a defensive posture. You have another one that's very much, um, you know, bob and weave maneuverability, you know, Moving up the, the tech tree as fast as she can, and Nora to kind of sucker punch. Yeah, <laughs> the the other almost plans. works. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, you know, well, another thing is that um, you you have in um, you know uh, the the high end real time strategy play, you'll have the difference between you know uh, micro and macro. And so you'll have some players that are very good at the macro aspects of gaming, the, the economics, building up a big force, and then essentially hitting their opponent with that sledgehammer, whereas you have others that are very good at the micro, they're very good at the moment-to-moment uh, um, minutiae of, oh, I'm going to trigger this ability on this unit against this target, and their their actions per minute are I don't know, you know, they spike up into like the five, six hundreds. I don't know how they do that, but somehow these high-end players manage that. Yeah. Um, and and so having, you know, portraying that aspect of, of high-end esports uh, in, in in the book as well. Well,
2: and also you, so, you, yeah. we get a chance to to talk to the designer of the game in this one and <laughs> you know, witness a conversation. He's a little, well, he's a, he's
4: a little cranky. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I wouldn't even say he was necessarily cranky, but he's very much his own. Like he's in his own world. Oh, I, so uh, many he, ways. He's,
0: yeah.
3: he's, he's very much in his own world. Um, he yeah. he is one of, one of the many um, uh, essentially uh, virtual <laughs> personalities. He's an abstract citizen, um, and he he very much mm-hmm. lives in the virtual. He doesn't like interacting with the physical at all. And, this room's um, too
4: small, Jacob. Yeah. This room's too small. I thought
2: that was a great touch. My
3: avatar is is what uh, I think, uh, like
2: 100 million million kilometers miles across. it. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and
3: Isaac's response is just very dryly reply: We do not have a room that large. No. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> what well, one of the things that I I really enjoy about um, uh, getting to write the file books is um, I, I enjoy the, the opportunities uh, for humor that uh, kind of present themselves and some of the uh, oddball characters that um, uh, Isaac and Susan have to deal with. And I sometimes kind of view it that our, our two protagonists um, occasionally step into a comedy and they don't realize it. And they are trying to you know, handle the system the, the situation in a very straight very methodical manner and this oddball character just won't let them <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and they just you know they have to adapt and they have to and that's how you end up with you know characters like ergon and um uh, what, Ivan, uh, Ivan Zo and yeah Kolberg. What, what's and, the
4: the guy who's actually running the 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 game competition uh, Col- Colberg. Yeah, the guy, the guy with all the, all the synthetic harem on, like, I I got to tell you, when I got to that part going through, I was like, I don't know, Jacob. <laughs> well,
2: I, I particularly liked the, the response of, of, uh, Miss Cho, uh, when she receives the files, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: are you, are you trying to get fired? Cause that's what's going to happen.
4: I like that when she asked him, so, so you know, well, there is part 19 is available now, you know, if you want me to order it for you. Yeah.
2: So yeah, and one of the things that you know, as a retired police officer, that that gets me is that there are moments of humor that will not be denied in any investigation. You know, even the the more awful stuff, you have to laugh, otherwise you're going to be crying. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that was a good way to to kind of get through a uh, bridge a lot of these uh, incidents yeah. is to uh, to see the humor in some of the things that are going on and some of the people's actions. Well, one, um, of the
4: th- one of the things that I think is hard for writers, or for some some writers, some storytellers, is to play fair with the characters. Some some storytellers have I need this character to do this, so this character will do this, and I'll make it I'll make it work, okay. And I think that that's not how you build realistic characters and not how you build realistic relationships between them. Okay. I think you have to be open to, well, this character is not going to do it that way. So I'll have to find another way to get there. That kind of goes back to your, your earlier question a little bit, but I think that if you don't do that, then you are limiting yourself and the story and the character now that doesn't mean that you could just allow the 12 year old to decide you know how everything is going to work going forward but it does mean that you have to be ready to say well okay i did this in chapter three and that's changed this character right going into chapter seven so how is that going to impact on what i originally had planned for this character to do there um and i think that i think that uh jacob for from where i sit there's an old awful lot of relatively new writers you understand after after this long uh but jacob to me seems to be have a a a better developed uh intuitive sense uh in that regard to allowing characters to grow and change and and become someone else and the other thing that's really hard for uh especially uh uh newer writers to do is to avoid stereotyping when they decide to build a character to avoid using the code words that okay you're going to know this as a character because you know he's he's grossly fat he's you know he's you know He sneers a lot, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, um, villains and heroes both are complex human beings just like anyone else, and most of the bad guys don't carry signs around that says bad guy here, right? Okay, um, now there are going to be some who are who do exactly that, all right, but the trick is to to make them the exception and not the rule. And I think that's something that that
2: Jacob has internalized very well here. Cool. So the setting for most of the story is a particular hotel on Luna with a notable departure that provides us a window into some of Susan's important backstory. Uh, Will we ever get to explore who is responsible for the attack that made her want to join the peacekeepers in the first place? Oh.
3: (laughs) if the uh if the series goes on long enough i think we will um one of the things that you know we've been sort of seeding uh in uh the the file books is um uh, basically setting up uh opportunities for, for future file books um, you, you saw that uh, in the end of uh, Janus file, and there's also a bit at the end of the built Toll file, where the, the higher-ups are sort of talking about, you know, the, um, the Opportunities.
4: Uh, yes, the, the,
3: you know, the results of the, the officer exchange program and future opportunities where, you know, they could potentially take the pair. Um, and so, Certainly, there's an opportunity there for um, Isaac and Susan to um, be, you know, working a case uh, that's, you know, either wholly or mostly centered in the admin, in yep. in Susan's, you know, home turf. And and if we do that, well, you know, <laughs> there there are plenty of opportunities, you know, for us as authors to, you know, explore, you know, the background of the character more. Um, and I think that in terms of you know the background of, of the two protagonists, um, I, I think there's um, you know not not to
0: belittle Isaac
3: at, at all, but but I think Susan, uh, there's there's a, a richer story to be told there because yeah, you know, all right, you know I, Isaac's background, well his 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 parents are cops, and now he's a cop, yeah. you know. Uh, he he has followed in in his parents' footsteps. Right. Um, Isaac uh, Susan very much is not. <laughs> right. um, you know, and um, her her parents were were not happy uh, with with her decision to join the peacekeepers. Um, and she uh, you know she she gave up her you know, organic body at a very young age at, I think, 23, 22 or
4: 23. Yeah, she was, she was like straight out of the college situation just about. Yeah.
3: And uh, so it's like, and and one of the things that, you know, uh, we we wanted to explore in this book was like, okay, well, what motivated her uh, to do that? And, and, you know, we, we do, you know, explore, uh, you know, a bit of her backstory there and, you know, the. The kind of crystallizing event that, um, you know, made her decide to, you know, join the peacekeepers and, you know, blow up terrorists for a living.
4: Let <laughs> me, let me, let me throw another point in here. Speaking as someone who has done one or two series, you know, in, in, in his career. Oh, just a few David. Just, just, just a few, <laughs> just a few. but in any well articulated literary universe especially one that has a bunch of of named characters who who come and go through the through the the underbrush if you will you have innumerable hooks that can be used if you go back and look at the honor harrington books there were some characters like Thomas Theisman that I tucked away with a deliberate designed idea of where he would ultimately go and he ultimately went there. Okay, right. but there were also a lot of other characters who I created who gave me this incredibly broad bench that I could go back and pull someone forward from if if I needed them and whatnot, the same thing is true in these books. If you go back and read the Gordian Protocol, Susan's in the Gordian Protocol, and she dies very early on <laughs> in the fighting between you know. Now she doesn't know that. This Susan doesn't know that. None of right. the the what one of the most powerful moments of of the the uh, the last uh, protocol novel was when Shigeki has to confront what he actually did trying to stop them in the Gordian protocol, what the other Shigeki did that he didn't do, what it cost people like Schroeder and and uh, you know, the the death of his family, you know, the the whole nine yards. Okay. Shigeki didn't do that. This Shigeki didn't do that. But this Shigeki knows himself. And he's looking at this 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 loss, this, this incredible damage that he's inflicted on the folks on the other side of the line, although he didn't do it. Okay. Right. And the guys from the from Cisco, they intellectually they understand that. Okay. And they don't know what happened to Jonas Shigeki in the other universe. They don't know what happened to Knox or Susan or any of the other characters from that universe, which was totally destroyed right uh in 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 the situation it it creates really interesting resonances that we can work with going forward okay and i really think that i'd like i say i think the scene where shigeki is it's obvious that you have a problem with me what is it and schroeder shares he
3: shows him (laughs) he shows him
4: the actual scene through his own eyes and shigeki is shattered Okay, he's like, My God, how could i have how could any iteration of me have signed off on that right now Shigeki himself did not sign off on it in the original book. he wasn't there. It was Knox who was on a berserk run you know the whole nine yards, but again, see, Shigeki doesn't know that right, and so this gives us all kinds of 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 nuances of of things that we can we can work with here in developing right. the complexity of these characters and the world in which they live.
2: Yeah, it struck me that the you know the, the closer the two universes are or the closer the, the events are, uh, it's there lots of opportunity, but for but for the grace of God, there go I. Yes. Right? You know, well it, the
4: other the, the other thing is you have to bear in mind, and if you haven't read the protocol books, especially the second one, you may not have picked up on this. These are the two universes that survived discovering time travel, okay? Right. None of the others around them really seem to have done real well with that, all right? And if you look at these universes, and this was deliberately baked in from the beginning, each of them had an almost fatal technological event, that totally different in, in the two universes, but they survived an extinction-level technological fubar. Right. Um, And um, and that's another thing that they have in common. But the difference in the nature of the two has a lot to do with the difference in how the two societies evolved going forward from that point. Um, So it's been. It's been a lot of fun. Um, We. Well,
2: they're a lot of fun to read. So.
4: Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I try. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's it's time travel. Jacob told me what he told me after we'd written the first book.
3: Yeah, it, I wasn't going to tell you before. Yeah,
4: he said he said he he told me after after the book. He said, David, I I think you should probably know that I had made up my mind years ago that the one book I would never write would be a time travel story.
2: And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, that's that was my excuse with uh with eric I, yeah I, I i told chuck's like you need to write for the grandfather's gazette i'm like time travel yeah uh, eh. uh, nope, don't nope, want nope. to do it
4: <laughs> well but see one of one of the things that eric got very very much right in the 1632 books is the fact that you can't change one thing without changing everything right okay that you're on by the time you have that one little poop that's going to kick off an alternate universe, everything from that point onwards, you're back it's all thrown back into flux. Right. Okay. So the the fact that there was a Shigeki in in uh in both universes in the Gordian protocol was in large part a factor of where and how the 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 split, the fracture in the time stream was was inflicted, where it happened. Um, and the assumption on the part of Ciscov in the beginning was that they had created the admin's universe through this, through this accident. Okay. In fact, they had not. Okay. But the, the knot they had tied had breached the wall between the two and created this kind of sport third universe that was floating out there in the middle. Um, and, and, we are trying very hard, okay, ah, uh, to to bear in mind the consequences of screwing around with the past, okay. Um, and now both of these societies are also going. Oh man, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> <wait> a <minute. laughs> that's a little more, especially after the Janus, ah, uh, after the um, Valkyrie, Valkyrie, Valkyrie protocol um i was like wait a minute i remember um but yeah it's um it's been fun i think i think probably the the four series that have been the most fun for me to write okay well obviously there's honor harrington okay uh and then and this is not necessarily an order of you know uh there's Stavehold, which I do for that other publisher that, that we won't we won't talk about right now. Um and then there's the fresa books, which I need to get back up and running on. And then there's this one. Um and this one I think has the most yeast <laughs> in it. Okay, do <laughs> you know what I'm saying here? Yeah. You
2: know. Yeah. Ne- so uh at its core the veltel file explores how people from separate universes not simply across the tracks from one another can come together if they recognize the humanity and the person across from them yeah. uh, was this something events in the earlier books made you want to explore or was it just these characters telling you how it should be
4: well for me for me it was less the characters and less anything that happened in the books Then it was, okay, it was baked into my original concept of the Gordian Protocol, the two sides that were going to have to somehow coexist afterward. And the reason that I wanted to do the original book was to explore kind of the limits of individual moral responsibility on the one hand. Okay. You have to go back and take responsibility for causing the Holocaust. Okay. I mean think think about what we were doing to Ben there. Okay. You have to go back and you have to personally be responsible for making sure the Holocaust happens and, and all the rest of this stuff.
3: Okay? And he didn't want to do
4: it. He did not <laughs> want to do it for a whole lot of reasons. Um that was the core moral aspect of my original idea for the series was that sort of responsibility taking. And that carries through into all the later books because characters have to make those decisions going forward. Okay. The way in which these people have to cope with each other and 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 live with each other though, to me, that's part of the human condition it's something that sadly right this minute in the 21st century United States we seem to be having a certain amount of difficulty with uh but you you have got to be able to find that shared common humanity that you were just talking about Griffin you've got to be able to find that not just i think in in your in real life i hope but also in satisfying fiction because Satisfying fiction has to resonate with the actual human condition. And so to me, that means it cannot be dystopian and it cannot be Pollyanna. And I think this these books avoid both of those extremes. Okay. And I think that Jacob and I are very much on the same page where that aspect of these books um, are is concerned jacob
3: oh yeah i mean i think that you know if you starting with you know the gordian protocol and and how these these two societies um disastrously met (laughs) um and
4: i can't understand why raybert's still holding a grudge um
3: and it's very easy you know for um it's very obvious to see what the differences are and the, the points of friction between these two societies um, but there are a number of characters on both sides that are interested in seeing beyond that because they're like hey if you know we just you know let, let things stand the way that they are uh, particularly in, in the early books this could end you know the in a number of bad ways, including all out war. Uh, and we don't want that. <laughs> um, and, and, and rightfully so, that's a very good attitude for those characters to take. Um, and as the two, you know societies kind of give each other a little bit of breathing room to be, you know, um, someone else, you know, and to be a little bit, you know, give them a little bit of leeway and and to like, okay, let's let's see if we can make this work. Let's try to you know get to know each other. It's like, oh, wait a second. We have a lot more in common than we realized and And so, yeah, you have the the points of friction, but but you also have points where they can come together and and really, a, a lot of um uh, this book um, deals with with both of those, you know, the the really harsh friction between the societies and where they're trying to do and, and to in, in, in a number of ways, successfully working together.
4: They're also discovering how much they have to offer each other. OK, now, Siskov, at least initially, was on the well. Of course, we have things to offer admin. okay? We're an open society. We have better tech than they do. And then they're like, "Well, now, wait a minute, in some aspects, their tech is actually better than ours, okay? And when it came to the 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 huge battle in um in uh, the the Valkyrie uh, protocol, that, I think, was the point at which the real probability, of successful cooperation slash coordination uh, between these two universes came from. And it came from the admin side. It came from the side that has the defensive mindset that's worried about technology, that doesn't have liberated AI and artificial citizens and everything else. They're the ones who who said, you know, basically, hey, we're gonna stand and fight with you or or whatever um and i think that sometimes in real life we need to be open to the possibility that somebody's going to surprise us by stepping up and being more than we ever expected them or had a right to expect them to be okay and it does happen all right mm-hmm. i think you also have to have be open to that in in your fiction in the stories that you tell Um, I tell people that science fiction serves the same function that um, uh, fairy tales served in a pre-technic society. Okay, cautionary tales, visionary tales, warning tales, inspirational tales, all of that. Science fiction does that for a technic society the way that fairy tales did them for a pre-technic society. I think that sometimes we get so involved in the social commentary aspect of the science fiction that we're writing that we lose track of those kind of timeless threads, timeless strands and responsibilities of the storytellers. Um, And I think that that is one of the things that Jacob and I are trying to keep our eye on in these books. We're not trying to be por- we're not trying to be uh portentous about it. We're not trying to be pretentious about it. Uh we're we're simply incorporating it because we think that's what good storytellers do. neat. And I should point out that sometime in the not too distant future, Jacob will be getting his toes wet in the honorverse as well. neat. Yes. uh, I yeah so I'm I'm looking forward to it too. It's going to be and he's going to have to restrain himself where the technology and He's not allowed to destroy any universes.
2: Okay. <laughs> no there, universes. There,
3: there, there were there were two um
2: but can he seriously almost... disturb a few universes, you know, split an atom or two?
4: He can split an atom or two. Okay. okay. Just yeah. want to make
2: sure. Yes. <laughs>
4: Well, oh,
3: David, uh, when he invited me to uh, write uh, with him in, in the universe, he, he laid down two very firm ground rules. And rule number one is no no destroying universes. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, number two, no big stompy robots.
4: No big stompy robots. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, like, uh,
3: you know, David, I think I
2: think I just can... Just took all the fun
4: robots. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So well, I, I'm I just, looking
2: forward to the very small stompy robot.
4: Yeah. Well, see, the problem he's gonna have is their prequels to the utterverse, uh, So he can't go around introducing technology that's more advanced, okay? Not unless he's gonna explain how they lost it. Um, so
2: yeah. It got stomped I, by a big stompy robot, obviously.
4: Okay, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Well, I have to say, I have to say, you know, okay. I probably shouldn't admit this, but I liked the original pacific rim movie okay i actually did okay giant stompy robots at all i really did um i thought that they did it well and i uh, okay and you did get a giant stompy robot in this universe i did yes you did
2: actually in a sub in a sub universe (laughs) yeah it's even a sub sub universe like yes uh, yes
3: i did i did get to slip one into the Janus file
2: so far so far so far sure. yeah.
3: well just the okay. one so far yes
4: but see <laughs> he's built the entire game that the giant stompy robot was part of in there you thought i didn't notice that okay but he, i did <laughs> okay. so- and now we
1: bring you our audiobook serialization of tinker by win spencer Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elvin Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss.
0: By the time she got Windwolf to the multiple trailers that served as the scrapyard's office and her workshop, she knew why Vids always had men saving women, and rarely the other way around. There just wasn't any way a woman, well, a five-foot-nothing woman, could carry around an unconscious, bleeding man in any artistic manner. In the end, she rigged a sling and used the crane to swing him across the scrapyard and down onto the front doorstep. She kept the electromagnet on until it was so close to the steel shell trailers that they were shuddering. When she shut the magnet down, Windwolf's pistol dropped down into his lap. She nearly fell climbing back down out of the crane and banged her head. She felt blood trickling down her face as she walked back to the trailers. She stuck Windwolf's pistol into her waistband. Getting the elf up into a firefighter's carry, she staggered through the office and into the trailer attached to it that she used as a workshop. Somehow she got Winwolf laid out on her work table without dropping or seriously banging him. Sparks, she sighed, head on Winwolf's chest, listening to his heart race. Her computer churned slightly as the AI answered, Yeah, boss? Are the phones online yet? No, boss. Oil can check in yet? No, boss. What's the time? 12.15 a.m. Fifteen minutes since Windwolf came over the fence. The longest fifteen minutes of her life. Leaving Windwolf in her workshop, she staggered back into the office. It was a two-bedroom mobile home, complete with kitchen and full bathroom. Forty years old and showing all of its age. She bolted shut the front door, got an Iron City beer out of the fridge, and then staggered back to the bathroom to wash her right hand well. Lava cleanser first, to scour off the day's layer of oil and grease, and then a rare soak in antibacterial soap for the upcoming messing with wounds. She cleaned around the bandage on her left hand, trying not to notice that it was blood-soaked. The only clean place on her face was what the night goggles covered giving her weird, inverse raccoon look. Her bottom lip was swollen, making her mouth seem even more full than normal. From somewhere within her haphazard hairline, a product of oil cans haircuts, and her own occasional impromptu trims, with whatever sharp object was at hand, blood trickled down. She hunted through her dark hair, looking for the source of the blood, and found a small cut. She wet down a washcloth and stood a few minutes holding it to her scalp sipping her beer, and trying to figure out what to do next. She had a weakness for strays. It was like someone early on had written sucker on her in magic ink. The weak and the helpless saw it, swarmed to her, and thrived under her care. Well, not all of them. Not plants. Her thumbs were black from motor grease and engine oil. She killed any plant she tried to doctor. Not the terribly fragile, either baby birds, and suicidal wrecks, she had found out, all dropped dead in her care. They seemed to need more mothering than she could muster. Perhaps her lack came from never seeing the real thing in action. The tough ones, though, survived. Perhaps more despite her care, she realized now, instead of because of it. When it came to healing, she knew enough to be dangerous. She could recognize that Windwolf was close to death. If he did die... She would find out if Tulu was right about the life-dead spell. Except for throwing a few pressure bandages onto him, though, she didn't know how to deal with him. Usually elves healed at a phenomenal rate, but only in the presence of magic. The elves had mastered bio-magic back when humans were doing flint weapons. Their dependence on magic to heal made Tinker theorize that their healing factor might mirror nanotechnology that the elves had some type of spell interwoven into their genes that endlessly corrected their bodies, thus healing any damage and keeping them from aging. She caught herself about to drift off into speculation on the type of spells they might be employing and returned to the problem at hand. Someone else would have to patch Windwolf up. Until she figured out who this mythical person might be and got Windwolf into his or her care, she had to keep the elf alive... It was shutdown day. They were on Earth. There was no ambient magic for his healing. But she did have the power sink that collected the magic drained off the crane. She used a modified magnetic containment field to store magical energy, one of her more successful experiments. She couldn't use the stored magic directly on Winwolf's body. It would be like trying to link someone with an artificial heart up to a 110 outlet. She could, though, Link the sink's energy to a healing spell. Sparks. Yeah, boss? Search the codex for healing spells. Put the results up on the workshop screen. Okay, boss. She got the first aid kit out of the back storage room and went back to her workshop. She ran out of pressure bandages long before she covered all of Windwolf's wounds, so she raided the bathroom for feminine hygiene pads and affixed them with lots of scotch tape. Sparks had queued up 20 healing spells. Some were quite specific. Broken bones, kidney failure, heart attack, and so on. She called those out and looked at the more general ones. One was labeled, will not work on humans. She had Sparks call up the spell schematics, wishing she understood bio-magic better. It seemed to do what she wanted, which was focus energy into the body's existing healing abilities. She cut and pasted in a power distributor as a secondary ring. She made sure the printer was loaded with transferable circuit paper, sent the spell to the printer, and finished her beer as it printed. Windwolf had worsened. Blood soaked the bandages. All color had drained out with his blood, and he breathed hard and shallow. She let the bandages be, but washed his chest. Peeling the protective sheet from the circuit paper, she pressed the spell to his clean flesh. She checked the spell's hertz cycle, hooked leads through a converter box, and taped the power cords into the power distributor. Here goes everything. She checked one last time to make sure all stray metal bits were clear of the magic's path, and flipped the switch. She checked her database and winced at the activation word phonetically spelled out. Oh, great. One of those ancient elvish words where you try to swallow your tongue. A footnote gave the translation. Be healed. The outer ring powered up first and cast a glowing sphere over the rest of the spell. Then the healing spell itself kicked in, the timing cycle ring clicking quickly clockwise as the magic flowed through the spell in a steady rhythm. Windwolf took five shallow breaths, then a long, deep breath, another, and another. He fell into a clean, easy breathing rhythm, color washing into his face. Yes, be healed, Tinker cried. I am your magic god. Say amen to me. Woohoo! She danced around the room. Oh yes, I am a god, the one, the only Tinker. Still pleased to giggles, she went to look at Windwolf. Really look at him for the first time in years. He was beautiful. But then again he was an elf. They were all beautiful and, unfortunately, all snobs, too. A blue silk ribbon gathered his glossy black hair into a thick, loose ponytail that came nearly to his waist. She tangled her fingers in the curly tips of the ponytail and felt the smooth silkiness of his hair. Deceptively delicate, his face held just enough strength in it to be masculine. All the fey features, full lips, sharp high cheekbones, perfect nose, pointed ears, almond-shaped eyes— and thick, long eyelashes. She couldn't remember the color of his eyes. They were the first elf eyes she had seen up close, within inches of her own. And they had been so stunningly vivid, she remembered that they left her breathless. But what color? Green? Purple? She wrapped the lock of black around her finger and rubbed it against her cheek. So soft. It smelled wonderful. A musky spice. She held it to her nose, trying to identify the scent. Mid sniff she realized he'd opened his eyes and was looking at her with silent suspicion. His irises were the color of sapphires, with the biggest price tags locked in jewelers' cases. The stunning deep blue that neared black. She gasped with surprise, and then cried as he shifted, Nitano, I've got a healing spell jury rigged on you. If you move, it would be bad. Do you understand, Conkow? He studied the spell hovering over his chest. The power leads to the siphon, and then the bulky containment unit itself. I understand, he said finally in English. He looked back at her. She was still holding the lock of his hair. Oh, sorry, you smell nice, she said, carefully dropping his hair. Who are you? He didn't remember her. Not that she was totally surprised their minutes together prior to today could be counted on the fingers of both hands and had been shared with one nasty monster. She had been thirteen then and still hadn't grown enough of a figure to distinguish her from the boys she played with. It seemed slightly unfair though. Her imagination had decided that he stood as some kind of symbol and featured him often in her dreams. They call me Tinker. Tulu had cautioned her against telling people her true name so often that using her nickname became Habit. You're in my scrapyard. Your eyes. He carefully lifted his right hand to make an odd gesture over his eyes. They were different. She frowned and then realized what he meant. Oh, yeah, I had my night goggles on. She fished them out of her pocket, demonstrated how they fit on. They let me see in the dark. Ah, he studied her silently for several minutes. I would have died. You still might. You're badly hurt. It's shutdown day and we're on Earth. I'm afraid if I don't take some drastic actions, you're not going to make it. Then drastic actions it must be.
1: That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber and Jacob Hollow, and tune in next week to hear part two of the interview. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.